is up guys it is kj and this is why theology today i had a special guest um actually two special guests mr austin and mr james of the covenant podcast they came on today and we talked about chapter two of our confession so stay tuned when we get back we'll, we'll be dealing with chapter two of our confession with special guest covenant podcast <music> What's up, guys? My name is KJ, and this is Why Theology. Today, I got with me two special guests, Mr. James and Mr. Austin from Covenant Podcast. Can you guys please introduce yourselves? Yeah, thank you, KJ, for having us on your show today. Uh, my name is Austin McCormick. Um, I am a Christian. I have been so for around five years. Um, I also have the privilege of being a husband to my wife, Rachel, we've been married for a little over three years, and I am the father to our one daughter, Geneva. Uh, I'm also the pastor of Shepherd Baptist Church in Dixon, Missouri. Uh, we are Southern Baptist Church seeking revitalization and reformation as we uh, seek to conform to biblical faithfulness. Um, I'm also confessionally committed to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. I'm a student at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary pursuing my Master of Divinity degree. And um, I'm the co-host of the Covenant podcast with um, my dear brother, Jimmy Johnson. So that's a little bit about me. Yeah, um, I'm also a, a pastor at Vista Baptist Church in, in rural Missouri. I am a graduate of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I graduated this past May with my MDiv. Confessionally speaking, just like Austin, I, I subscribe to the 1689 Confession. Um, as I've said on our podcast before, I'm actually working through to, to produce a discipleship curriculum that takes people through the confession of faith. And then as Austin already alluded to, I am the co-host of the Covenant podcast. I'm very grateful that Austin asked me to, to join him a while back and, and have really enjoyed doing that. I'm married to my wife, Lauren. We've been married for five years, going on six. And then we have two beautiful daughters, Joanna Joy Johnson, who is two, and then Leah Kate, who is just four months old. But that's a little bit about us. Thank you for having us on the show. KJ. No problem, man. I'm definitely interested as to how you guys met and like <laughs> what kind of inspired you guys to make this podcast. Did you guys meet like at the school or like somewhere like younger or how did you guys meet up? So uh, this is an interesting uh, providence that has brought us together. Jimmy pastors the church that my father-in-law used to pastor. And so mm. I was actually converted, heard the gospel in the church that Jimmy pastors, uh, was baptized in that church and then left for college and uh, to pursue ministry. And our friendship really began. I didn't know Jimmy very well. Whenever I started getting into some theological questions that I needed help with, um, I, as a new believer, had never heard of the different hermeneutic methodologies uh, dispensationalism, Presbyterian covenant theology, and then Baptists having their own variety of covenant theology. And I was uh, visiting with a member of one of Jimmy's church, uh, or one of his members from his church asking for help. And uh, he said, go talk to our pastor. I'm sure 
our pastor would love to talk with you about this. And so I had questions about covenant theology. I reached out to Jimmy and that was the seed of our, <laughs> our friendship and uh, really took off from there. Perhaps Jimmy may want to say something about that. Yeah. Yeah. Austin was just curious about doctrinal things. I actually met Austin the first time when I went with that said church member he mentioned to a, a revival um, in, in Missouri, I met Austin for the first time in person and, and heard him, him preach. And, and we kind of connected that way. Um, and then really we just, we clicked, we, we complement one another well, personality wise, as well as gifts and things like that. And eventually Austin had started a podcast called the context is key. And he eventually morphed that into the covenant podcast. And it was, asking for people to interview our suggestions and he had interviewed me once before and I guess he enjoyed it and he asked me to come on and, and be a full-time co-host with him so I I have enjoyed doing that and and yeah I mean it's really just been God's providence that has brought us together and we've developed a good friendship and as he said his father-in-law is actually the predecessor or my predecessor at my my current church so, yeah, an interesting, interesting way that God worked to bring us together. Yeah, that's kind of unique right there. Now, what kind of, um, how'd you guys get the name Covenant? I'm assuming because of Covenant Theology, but what, what guys made you kind of name the podcast Covenant? Yeah, so I guess I can answer this since uh, I was the one that kind of morphed it before Jimmy joined uh, as a co-host. Uh, yeah, uh, so my interest in covenant theology really uh, led me to studying the particulars of the 1689 confession of faith. And my questions about covenant theology brought my friendship with Jimmy. So in many ways, covenant theology has shaped how I interpret the Bible, how I see Christ in all of scripture um, and how I can preach Christ from all of scripture without feeling like I'm either contradicting myself we're over-spiritualizing the text. So, yes, as Baptists, as 1689 Baptists, we have a covenantal hermeneutic, and we seek to express our covenantal theology with the name of our show. That's awesome. That's awesome. I was going to uh, tell you guys, too, um, just because you guys know kind of what's going on. So, like, uh, I, I think Jake Stone has been you guys' uh, podcast episode. I think I listened to a couple of episodes with him on there. He gave like an awesome preface and like historical background of like our confession as well as, you know, who the Baptist was, you know, everything that was going on then. And then last week I had um the particular Baptist podcast episode. They came on board and um, helped me walk through chapter one. So today we're going to be walking through chapter two. But for, like, for the sake of this, for somebody who hasn't listened to the first two episodes, how would you guys describe a, a, a confession? And what do we mean when we say 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith? Um, I mean, when when we say subscribe to a confession of faith, essentially, we're saying that we we believe that the, the 1689 confession of faith in particular is a accurate portrayal of what the Bible teaches, um, holistically speaking on various subjects. So so a confession of faith is essentially just a systematic summary of what the Bible teaches on various topics. And there's a logical order to it. It starts with scripture, goes to the doctrine of God, which we'll be discussing, and then it moves from there into creation, and then, or rather the divine decree, and from the decree to creation, 
providence and then we get into the fall of man and it it goes systematically through that order and goes through salvation church all kinds of things but essentially it is just a a summary of what we believe the bible to be teaching and both Asa and i agree that the 1689 is the most accurate of of the 17th century confessions and i would argue of of confessions period um the most accurate portrayal of the bible and and some reformed folks may not like that we think that but we do and and we unapologetically confess that doctrine what what or that belief and what was the second part of your question so yeah uh i think you kind of answered it but uh, i was i was saying um what when we say like 1689 about this confession yeah. of faith how would you guys kind of describe that i think you got to dig it already yeah yeah but before you move on to the next question i i would like to add uh what ch spurgeon says about the 1689 baptist confession of faith and I think it uh -huh. uh, also piggybacks well off of what Jimmy says. Um, he said, this ancient document is the most excellent epitome of the things most surely believed among us. It is not issued as an authoritative rule or code of faith whereby you may be fettered, but as a means of edification and righteousness. It is an excellent, though not inspired, expression of the teaching of those holy scriptures by which all confessions are to be measured. We hold to this humbling truths of God's sovereign grace and the salvation of lost sinners. Salvation is through Christ alone and by faith alone. So I think Jimmy got at that with, with his own definition of what a confession of faith is. Yeah, that's right on the spot. I love C.A. Spurgeon. I actually, he's one of my favorite theologians. I like, uh, I think Jonathan Edwards is my favorite guy, <laughs> but Spurgeon is my second. So both those guys, I go to work, print out their sermons. It's kind of bad, but I just be breaking their sermons now while they work. <laughs> while they work throughout the week. I was going to ask you guys too, what are you guys, I'm like, what influenced you guys like to this particular um, confession? I think you got to answer to Mr. Austin before you, Mr. James. What kind of influenced you to this particular confession? Well, um, I did not grow up in, in a Christian home at all. And when I, I was saved, the church that I went to was a Southern Baptist church. They would say in their, their documents that they subscribe to the Baptist faith and message, though I, I never was even introduced to that until I, I went to college. And it wasn't actually until Bible college that my systematic theology professor required us to, to read and give one word sentences of every paragraph of, of the confession of faith um and as i went through it there i began to to explore what they were saying and even more so when i i started at seminary i actually started at a presbyterian seminary so they were making me read the westminster confession and and use it in papers and things like that so i was i knew i was a baptist and i i knew i disagreed on certain points with with the presbyterian our Presbyterian brothers, but I, I really didn't have a good framework to really even challenge what it was that, that I disagreed. So I, I began to read 17th century Baptist and, and some, some early 18th century Baptist too, and, and see what arguments they, they raised. And eventually I, I was led back to the 1689 confession. As I read it, I, I just became more and more convinced that that it was the most accurate summary of of what the Bible taught, and it, and it it did leave some issues open to where where there could be disagreements even among Baptists. But I, I believe it just gives a a good summary of what the Bible teaches, especially as in terms of being Baptist, especially what it 
it says about the nature of the church, um, hmm. how the church relates to the state, and and even more so, I, I believe it's its shorter version of the chapter on the covenant. I I think is actually more more helpful and accurate than than what you find in either the Savoy or the Westminster Confession. So eventually, the Lord just led me to to see it as as the most biblical expression of of the Christian faith in summary form. And I've found it helpful in teaching other people too, as I write this curriculum and, and take people through it as I'm writing my curriculum and take people through it. So that's in summary why I, I believe it. I know for myself, uh, all the way down here in little Ar- the state of Arkansas, I like the, the, I guess the common misconception is like, you know, to be reformed is kind of just a hold to like, you know, the doctrines of grace. And so like, for the most part, when I first got saved, I was always, you know, a five-point Calvinist, but like I never knew like about covenant theology. And I had, mm-hmm. I, you know, my favorite preacher at the time was Johnny Mack. And so like he was kind of like what you call legal dispensationist. So I kind of had that mentality as far as eschatology. But if somebody were to sit down and have a conversation with me, I'm sure I've always believed in covenant theology from like the Baptist perspective, like in you know, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. But I never had anybody walking through me kind of. And so when I came to my first Reformed Baptist church, which I'm a member of now, my pastor kind of helped me. And I have a friend named Blake. He kind of helped me as well, kind of see what does it truly mean to be reformed and my kind of confession. And so about kind of what you just said about being Baptist, that's kind of what I knew what the Westminster Confession of Faith was because my, my friend, he's a Presbyterian. <laughs> like, I don't believe in that. And so when I got a hold of this, I was like, oh, yeah, I believe all this. Amen. So, yeah, that's kind of what kind of prompted me to kind of uh, hopefully throughout this year, Lord willing, I'm going to try to like break it down each chapter throughout this year. So, I'm so glad you guys came on board today. And today we're going to be doing chapter two, God and the Holy Trinity. So last week we had 10 paragraphs. So this week we got three. So maybe we can get this. <laughs> get this <laughs> out. But yeah. Let me read this first paragraph and let's just kind of dialogue. and Let's see what you guys are thinking as well. Um, the first paragraph, it says this in chapter two, God and the Holy Trinity. The Lord, our God is one, the only living and true God. He is self-existent, infinite and in being in perfection. His essence cannot be understood by anyone but him. He is perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible and has no body parts or unchangeable motions. I'm going to stop right there because there's a lot of stuff right that we already can talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I mean, just starting off, the the confession is explicitly monotheistic. I mean, and, and it kind of starts on that basis. I mean, it, it gets into the Trinity in paragraph three, but right off the bat, it asserts what is quite frankly biblical doctrine that there is only one true god and and this god is self-existent um i i believe you're reading a modern version of it um (laughs) but in in the 168 in a older version old language it says whose subsistence is in and of himself um which simply just means that he exists um just eternally he he was not created he didn't begin um, he's infinite in his being. He's without limits in any way, shape, or form. And the the confession affirms that these things being true, this this God of the Bible, he is ultimately incomprehensible, meaning that we can't comprehend him. We can't understand him in his fullness. And then you get into things like he doesn't have parts. Um, it means God is simple and uncompounded. He's not a the sum total of all his attributes he's he's absolutely one he is love he is holy he is just um he's not part just part love part 
holy. He is all those things simultaneously. In fact, those words just describe the one essence of God um, and from various angles. And then without passions means that he, he simply, he's unaffected by, by things outside of himself. Um, he, he doesn't experience emotional change as we experience emotional change. And, and Austin, do you have anything to add before I get into impassibility a little bit more? Because I, I think that's a confusing doctrine. Um, whose subsistence is in and of himself, we might add that he is all say he, he exists yeah. in and of himself. So yeah, that's all I've got, but yeah, go ahead, Jimmy. Yeah. I know so, sometimes oh, you go ahead, man. Nope, you go ahead, brother. <laughs> I was going to say, I know sometimes we speak of like the aseity of God, kind of with that word, self-existent in and of himself. He's without a need. So I was going to bring that up as well. You can go ahead, no man. Yeah. Without passions is, I, I think, one of the, the more difficult doctrines because we, we get into scripture language that seems to describe God as sharing in emotions like us, or even you get language like, in in Jonah and even in First Samuel, God repenting, and in even in Genesis, God God regretted that that He made Adam and Eve, and the way theologians have historically engaged with that, rather than than just saying, well, yeah, God has one to one emotions as we do, they've said that Scripture sometimes uses either anthropomorphic or anthropopathic language. So anthropomorphic scripture often speaks of God having arms and eyes and a nose and, and stuff like that. And, and theologians are like, well, obviously this is, this is symbolic. It's conveying something about God, but it's not saying it in one-to-one way. And they, they kind of did the same thing when it speaks of God's emotions. Scripture is written from the vantage point of men as they experience God. So when they talk about God being angry they're 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 really discussing god exercising his justice in time it's not god who is changing it's it's god's creation that is changing and however we experience that in in such ways in our own faculties as as anger but when we say god's impassable we're we're simply saying that he's immutable just another way that he's immutable he doesn't change um our actions don't actually change god who he is in and of himself, because if they did, he wouldn't be God. Yep. This next part here, um, it says he is unchangeable, like you just said, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way, infinite, absolutely holy. And I just got done preaching the sermon about God's holiness. I know we can't speak of one attribute as, you know, more fundamentally important, you know, than the mm-hmm. others, but if we had, I think Lewis Burkhoff says, is that if we had, you know, scripture proof, as to what you know, actually will be more important. Scripture kind of tells us that God is holy. That's kind of the most important. Mm-hmm. So, what do you guys think? What is holy? What does it mean to be holy? You go for it, Austin. Okay. <laughs> um, my own imperfect definition that He is completely perfect and without any sin. Yeah. And and all I would add, holiness also conveys this idea of divine transcendence. Mm. He, he's over and above all things. He, he exists on a plane that he exists. I mean, he exists alone on his plane. There is nobody at his level um, in any way, shape or form. There is no other infinite one. There is no other evil God that God is in combat with, as, as many Gnostic 
um, dualistic religions teach God alone is holy, holy, holy. I know we speak too, like of like, you know, how you just said his transcendence, his being set apart, and how you said, you guys said no one could comprehend it. I think John Gill says too that like, he is holiness itself. He's a very definition of that word. Mm -hmm. I don't know what words that. And the next part is it says perfectly wise, holy, free, and completely absolute. He works all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and completely righteous will. I think that's getting into like the decrees of God a little bit. Mm -hmm. What do you guys want to take on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I, I think it's getting into God's actions that, that flow from, from his essence. I mean, he, all that God does um, is ultimately an outworking of his own nature. And, and I mean, it's independent of the creature. It, it comes from within himself. Like God is not moved to love us. He is love. Which is comforting to me because, I mean, in, in the sense that, I mean, I'm a sinner and, and, and in terms of in comparison to God's perfect standards, I, I have there is no way that I could earn a perfect God's love. But God loves essentially he, he is love and he is gracious and he is merciful and he is patient um, and good and true, as as the confession says. And, and I mean. Truth be told, I mean, all these things, as the confession asserts earlier, cannot be comprehended. We can try and define them and, and talk about them and speak at them. But I, I think as the, I read the confession, it's just like I moved to worship because it's like, holy cow, this, this God that we worship is, is so great. And the fact that he would show grace to, to a sinner or even pay attention to a creature like us. <laughs> is is remarkable mm -hmm. to me i think it's kind of unique too like when you think of words you, you normally don't think of them as being people but like we say like the word is god we know we're talking about jesus but like how you just said how like god is love and he is holiness like all these words that we use god is all those things and so it's kind of cool to see that how we mm -hmm. kind of describe that to him and next, i think the next part what you just said kind of ties into that he says he is most loving gracious merciful and patient and so, like you said, he's all those things. And the next part says, he overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And so that's why we're even doing this podcast right now, because he's gracious. Amen. And so the last sentence, uh, yeah, well, the last two sentences, he rewards those who seek him diligently. At the same time, he is perfectly just and terrifying his judgment. What does it mean that he is terrifying his judgment for you guys? Go ahead. You Go start off. You're the, between the two of us, you're the systematician. No, I, I, I would, I don't know about that. I do, but I do um, know about that. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, just, I mean, it means that his judgments are righteous in and of themselves, and and then terrible or terrifying. I mean, this is this is from our vantage point, right? I mean. God, I mean, consider I've been reading through the Bible and, and going through Exodus and stuff like that and just considering the plagues that, that were sent upon upon Pharaoh. Um, those were, were some of God's judgments. Or we read the prophets um, talking about the terrible day of the Lord. There, there's the sense when, when God brings his justice to bear on, on those who, who are not his people. Um, there, or even when he does on his people in the Old Testament, they're, I mean, they're terrified. 
there's nothing that the people can do to stop it. Um, because again, we're talking about this God whose immensity and, and perfections and who is infinite and eternal. It's like, what, what can you do? You can't flee. You can't run. David talks about how he goes to the bottom of the sea. God's there. He goes up into the heavens. God's there. He goes down to the grave. God is there everywhere. Um, God is, he sees all of our imperfections. And when God brings his judgment to bear on people, it's like, it is a terrifying thing. I mean, if if God did not extend grace, it's like the, the proper posture of, of a human being to God would be abject terror um, because he is immense and holy and we're not. <laughs> and and we I mean, the only proper response without grace is, well, you're going to bear judgment and, and there's nothing you can do as, to escape it. So you go, Austin. I think it's it's critical to note that within this section, it also talks about, it says him being just and terrible in his judgment, but it, it also finishes uh, paragraph one by including hating all sin and who will by no means clear the guilty. And I think that is a summarization of being most judged, that he will put a punishment mm-hmm. to sin, which helps us to contemplate what is sin in our confession gets at that later in uh, the fall of man. But of course we know sin is the transgression of God's law. Um, Romans three twenty three all have sinned. Um, Jeremiah 44, four says that sin is an abominable, abominable thing that God hates. Um, Ezekiel 18, four says the soul who sins shall die. And um, Revelation 21, 27 gives a summarization of those that are unclean, not being able to enter into heaven. So God's holiness will not allow for sin into heaven. He will by no means clear the guilty. And I think um, this is. Uh, consistent with him being most just and most terrible in his judgments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's why, too, the author of Hebrews, probably Paul, he says, it's a terrible thing to fall in the hands of a living God. And it's kind of scary to think about that, too. Edwards, he preached, you know, sinners in the hands of the anger of God. Till his day, these words, how many, it's just crazy to think about this, how easy it is to die. You know, when we were lost at one point, if we would have died at any moment, we would have went to hell, but, you know, how God extended his grace to us. But Edwards mm-hmm. says in that summer, and the only thing that stands between a person and hell is nothing but the thin air and the mere pleasure of God holding us up. And so like for people that's lost, like it's kind of terrifying. They don't even see this. Like at any moment you could die and face the judgment mm-hmm. of God, like this is. That's so terrifying. But for us, we know that we're made justified in Christ. So that's a blessing. That's, that's kind of why um, the second paragraph starts off by saying God is all life, glory and goodness and blessings in and of himself. He alone is the all sufficient in himself. And so God, you know, is goodness. He has life. I think that ties into what he says to John 11. Whoever believes in me will have life. But what's your guys take on that? Go for it, Austin. God having all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself is alone in and unto himself all sufficient. So we see that doctrine uh, that was first introduced in paragraph one, God's aseity, his subsistence in and of himself or him existing in and of himself and then uh, we have a description there of some of uh, 
would it be appropriate to say his attributes, Jimmy? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I, I would, I would say that, and then, and then it moves into to God's acts and and how he he interacts with creation. He alone is the source of all being. Everything is from him, through him, and to him. Um, so. So creation or, or all that is outside of God, we might, might make it more comprehensive. All outside of God is dependent upon him for its entire existence. If, if God did not bring it into being, it would not exist. And it, and it continues to depend upon him for its existence. Um, so that, that'll become very important when you get into chapter 3 as, as the confession gets into creation and chapter 4 or chapter four and then chapter five, rather. Um, chapter four being creation, then chapter five being providence. Um, it, it, all of that owes its being and continued being to God. This is how, too, um, that first sentence, this is how you know, like, our, our confession was rooted in the, the ref, you know, the Protestant Reformation because mm-hmm. it says, you know, God is all glory. We think about mm-hmm. um, Solidaire Gloria. And it kind mm-hmm. of ties back to that as well, to God be the glory. And so our glory is for him. And I know God is most satisfied in his own glory. He's like you said, we, we can't add to God's glory. Now God is in him himself. He was already mm-hmm. glorious, you know, in eternity past, but now we're able to see that glory. And even mm-hmm. right now, we can all comprehend it. This next part, um, I think one of you guys read it, but it says, instead, he demonstrates his own glory in them by them and to them and upon them. He alone mm-hmm. is the source of all being and everything is from him. Next sentence mm-hmm. says he has absolute sovereign rule over all creatures. Now let me stop because I know sometimes after the doctrinal world, people have a hard time understanding what does it mean that God is sovereign. Is man free or is God sovereign? Which one is it? <laughs> yes. The answer is yes. Oh. <laughs> That's a good answer. That's a good answer. Um, I mean, truth be told, uh, this is really just preparing for for chapter yeah. three and chapter five um so i don't want to get too much into it and and walk over what what your your fellow guys will or what following episodes will talk about but i mean it god is the primary cause of of all that exists and all that happens it it ultimately is rooted in him or flows out of him and yet god does give freedom to what the confession will later call secondary causes um but i don't want to get too much into that because again when you when you have someone come on and talk about either chapter three or chapter five they'll they'll that part of the confession is very detailed so i mean and it it explains it and then later you actually have a chapter on freedom of the will yes chapter nine the the yeah the confession actually affirms a notion of free will um under god a God who is all sovereign and, and the confession writers see no contradiction in that. And they do that by affirming this notion of primary and secondary causation. All right. So it says that he is absolute sovereign role of all creatures to act through them and for them upon them as he pleases talking about, you know, God's providence. And the next sentence, it says his knowledge is infinite and infallible. Mm-hmm. So what do we mean when we say that? that his knowledge is infinite and infallible for those who have no idea what we're talking That's, about. Yeah, I mean, oh, I was going to just off. say that it, it seems to be a further uh, description of what has already been set forth in the first paragraph, that he is 
most holy, most wise. So he knows everything. He doesn't have to learn anything. There's no knowledge that is outside of himself. Um, he, mm-hmm. all truth flows from his being. Well, and, and though I'm not for certain that, that the confession writers were, were going against that, this, but I mean, this and, and what follows in the very next sentence, I'll let you read it, um, in a moment, but, uh, it essentially gets at or, or challenges the notion of middle knowledge of, of God decreeing things on, on the basis of some sort of foresight, um, some sort of middle knowledge of all possible realities and decreeing based upon, upon some sort of foresight. Um, rather, the confession affirms that God just simply knows in and of himself all things. Um, and, and his knowledge is not fallible in any way, shape or form. He can't possibly be wrong. But I'll stop there. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves again, as I have many times already. Uh, you good, bro. You get it. I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. So let me read that sentence for you. It says, it does not depend on, depend upon any creature. So for anything, nothing is contingent or uncertain. And I know yeah. you kind of just mentioned, like I keep on saying, like how this doctrine of um, 1689 is rooted in the Reformation. And we had a confession, you know, the guys, the Candace Vidor. It was combating everything um, that, you know, Jacob Arminius was t- teaching at that time or his followers. And so it's kind of the direct opposite of Arminianism as you guys know today. Yeah. So yeah. we just know that God is sovereign. He, you know, we don't, it's not that like, you know, I know a lot of people say, you know, when Israel, they, you know, killed the Messiah, the church coming into the net is, you know, this, um, that tree that is olive tree that, you know, Paul was talking about that was plan B. But what we're saying kind of here, what the writers of our confession are saying, that this has always been plan A in the sense that God does mm-hmm. not make decisions based on humans, but only on his, you know, his will. Mm, mm, so true. Amen. The last sentence it says, "He." We talked about this earlier. He is absolutely holy in his plans and all his works and in all his commands. Angels and human beings owe to him all the worship, service, or obedience that creatures owe to the Creator, and whatever else he is pleased to acquire for them. What you guys take on that? Yeah, I'll I'll just comment on that that last part where it talks about how, well, actually, it's the whole thing, essentially. But, I mean, angels and human beings, by by being creatures, owe worship, service, and obedience to the Creator. I mean, there there is a natural law, we might say, a, a moral responsibility upon all creatures to give God the worship that is due to Him. And then that, that second um, clause it says and whatever else he is pleased to require of them and this will become very important when when you get into chapter seven as as well as when you get later into the chapter I believe it's 19 on on the law of God and and it's this division that that the reformed as well as particular Baptists following in suit make between the law you have the moral law and then you also have what can be called positive law and, and positive law is laws that God makes to particular individuals on the basis of covenant. God is able to give laws over and above nature. Um, an example of this will show up on the chapter in covenant, or rather the chapter on sin prior to that, talking about Adam. He's given a positive law. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If God did not actually legislate that law, that would have not been a law um, in the sense that Adam would have owed it to God by virtue of being a creature. It 
to not eat that tree. But God actually gave an explicit command that Adam must not eat that tree or in the day that he does, he will most surely die. And, and other positive laws will, will be laws given to Israel um, for the particular covenant that they were under. The, the law of circumcision would be an example of a positive law as well as the priesthood and things like that. They, they aren't moral laws. They're given particularly. They aren't immoral, but they are given particularly to those people under those covenantal um, relationships. A positive law in the new covenant would be the to bap- be baptized. I mean, <laughs> in the sense that it is not a, a moral law, um, a law written on our heart, but is given as a requirement of the new covenant. Um, and the same thing would, could be said of, of the Lord's Supper would, would be another example of a positive law. But already, and, and, and I find this fascinating about the confession, it well, maybe not fascinating. To a nerd like me, it's fascinating. But I mean, it, it's so so orderly that, I mean, a lot of what is going to come later is already being anticipated in chapter one, two, and they all build off of each other. You can't just open up the page of the confession and, and just try and interpret a random chapter out of context of what precedes it. it it's very dependent upon what goes beforehand. And, and already we're introduced to, to the notion of moral as well as positive law right there. Hmm. It reminds me too, uh, I think it's Spurgeon's Catechism, question number one, you know, what's the chief in the man? Glorify God and love forever. And then right here in our confession, it says that we are required to you know, worship God. That kind mm-hmm. of ties in hand in hand. Now this next paragraph, probably one of the most difficult things, you know, we could talk about, you know, in the Bible, which is the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Let me read this first sentence right here. It says, this divine infant being consists of three real persons, the Father, the Word, or the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three have the same substance, power, and eternal eternity, each having the whole divine essence, without its essence being divided. Now I'm going to give Jimmy, you guys the best go, shot. <laughs> Jimmy, I'll go first if you want to correct me afterwards, then you can talk about uh, sure. eternal generation and eternal spiration in the next sentence if you have no correction for me. But um, we, we, we see some essential doctrines being laid forth in the first sentence. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences. So we see the distinction between persons or, as the confession calls them, subsistences, which I think is more descriptive. Then they are named the Father, the Word, or the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen, which is cited in our confession, uh, has a specific verse where all three of the persons seemingly are being addressed, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Of course, another um, verse that you're very familiar with, Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So within the first sentence, we see that one of the essential doctrines of understanding who our God is, is the distinction of persons. And before uh, I continue, mm-hmm. um, let me just say that uh, the importance of confessions is essential because we don't have to start over every single time to discover who our God is whenever the church of all ages has summarized in this concise way to help us perceive using the scriptures in a systematic way to understand what the Bible teaches about who God is. 
So we're great to be grateful to be having this conversation. The next part says of one substance, power and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. So now we see um, another essential doctrine of the Christian faith, which was already addressed in paragraph one, that God is one. These three persons that exist within the Godhead all contain all of the whole essence of the Godhead. um, We saw, or maybe we didn't reference it earlier, but God being one, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Don't think it's quoted in the script or in the confession. I think it's Isaiah 44, 6. I am the first in the, oh wait, that may be the wrong verse I'm thinking of. Um, But clearly we see uh, this teaching that there are three persons. There is one God. And then we will now, I think, get into uh, eternal generation and eternal spiration. So I hand it off to Jimmy. (laughs) Well, yeah. And, and I don't have much to add to, to what you, you already said, but I mean, subsistences, I mean, the, the modern version that, that is being read, um, just converts it back to real persons, but, but the Baptist, um, I, I believe, and, I could be wrong here. I believe they might have been following the Savoy, but they might have done this uniquely themselves. Um, the Westminster says persons, um, whereas the the 1689 uses this very technical term, subsistence. And and subsistence, it, it means an individual instant, instance of a given essence. Um, and in the case of the divine essence, it subsists undivided and equally in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, it, it's kind of a more precise way to, to say persons. That is the divine essence, the one divine essence, equally subsists in, in all three of those persons. The, the Father is God. The, the Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. It's not the Father is one part of God. The Son is another part of God. And then the Spirit is another part. They are one God. Um, in three subsistences, that one essence subsists in all three persons. And, and I, I think that's very fundamental for us to understand that, that it's not like this, this hierarchy of, of being within the Godhead. They are all God. And, and Austin quoted, started to quote Isaiah 44, 6. Um, and and I, th- I think he was right in saying that because it says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Beside me, there is no So it was God. the right verse. <laughs> and yes, 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 you, you were spot on um, in, in, in quoting that, that verse. There is only one God who is worthy of worship. And yet we, we, we read um, even breadcrumbs in the Old Testament of, of th- distinctions being made. Um, between those that are called God, the Lord said to my Lord, David says, or you have the son of man who, who in Daniel, who is going to receive worship and dominion over all creation, um, something that God alone can possess. Um, the Holy Spirit floated over the water at creation, 
Um, and then in the New Testament, it is given to us in great clarity. You, you clearly have the Father as God, and, and yet there is this one who is with the Father, known as the Word, who is also God. Um, and this word became flesh. And then you have the Holy Spirit, who is the Holy Spirit of the Lord, of Yahweh. He is the Spirit of Yahweh. And, and in order to be the Spirit of Yahweh, that would require that he is Yahweh. And, and in the, uh, the curriculum that I'm working on, I, I, I make them do an inductive Bible study on the baptism account of Jesus, um, because in that account, you have all three persons present, and yet they are distinguished from one another. You have the Son incarnate who is baptized. You have the Spirit who descends like a dove. And then you have the Father who is speaking, declaring his approval of his Son. So, I mean, it, we are affirming and confessing. And the confession is essentially just parroting what the Nicene Constantinople Creed itself says, um, that, that God is one, and yet this one God is three subsistences. So we can move on to the next part if there's nothing else you want to add, Austin. Just the uh, difference between subsistence and person. I think Augustine said, I say persona in Latin just to be reduced to not saying anything. And so it's inter interesting <laughs> that I think you're correct here that this was unique to the Baptists. I don't think it comes from the Savoy. I could be wrong on it, that the Baptist chose to use subsistence. So thank you for bringing up that uh, difference in technical terminology. No, that's a good point. I think too, um, we think about this, like all three persons all have the same mind and will. It's not like, mm -hmm. like you guys said, like the father is over here doing something, the spirit and the son are doing two different things. And then as well, like you guys said, by having a confession, this is of our confession of the God and the Trinity. And so this is our confession right here. This is what we believe. And so I know, like, for example, I think like Spurgeon says, you know, in his introductory law, you know, having this confession is like a tool used to, like, you know, contradict some of the errors that's like in the world today. And so you guys know we have like that doctrine of eternal sign of subordination, whatever people are saying that you guys know about that, mm -hmm. as well as, you know, modalism saying that, you know, you have the father, then you transfer it into the son. There's a whole bunch of foolishness out there. And so by having these confessions, it's kind of straight to the point. It teaches us, you know, what the church has always believed. Yeah, you make a good point that this the important doctrine that's laid out here of, of God existing in three subsistences rejects the heresy of modalism. Um, the important doctrine of God being one in his essence rejects the uh, heresy of Arianism. The essence being undivided rejects the heresy of partialism. So our confession is both orthodox and a helpful tool to correct from heresy. Yes, it is. Um, last two sentences right here. I think one of y'all said this, but it says all three are infinite and without being and are therefore only one God who is not to be divided in nature and being. Yet these three are distinguished by several distinctive characteristics and personal relations. It's kind of empty sentence, but what what's kind of you guys take on that? <laughs> um, Austin brought up Augustine, and and Augustine's um, on the Trinity. His his book on the Trinity when he he spends a great deal of time figuring out how how we distinguish between the persons, and and basically 
he uses these these terms that that will show up later like the father is begotten of none the son is the only begotten and and the spirit is the one which flows or 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 spirates from the father and the son um and and basically he he says there's no better way to say it so that's how we say it that's how augustine <laughs> augustine gets at it i mean and it's like a 500 page book and it's a pretty lengthy section but at the end of it all he's saying this is what the best that that human um language can this is the best way for us to employ human language to accurately portray what scripture is speaking about god so when when we say that i mean they're they're particular properties or, or relational personal properties it's like that's what the confession says the father is not begotten so basically it's just saying the father is not the son <laughs> <laughs> and, and and then it says the son is the only begotten so there you go he he's not the father i mean and and yet in some way he he is generated of the father um and yet at the same time we're not saying that he is a a separate creature or created in any way shape or form because his generation is eternal but this is a a doctrine that I, I think it's Carter that, that actually asserts this, that it's not so much a doctrine that we, we define, but it's more so we're, we're describing it and, and we, we worship in light of it um, because it, we are discussing something that is so, so mysterious and we really have any clue to it because the Bible has revealed it. It is, I believe it's Burkhoff who says that the, the doctrine of the Trinity is a, a doctrine of pure revelation, a pure special revelation. Um, and, and without scripture, we'd have no way of conceiving it. But yet this God that we know has revealed himself as Trinity. And the best way for us to think of talking about it is simply to say that that the son is not the father and the spirit is not the son or the father. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, that would be how I'd kind of get at some of the that terminology. You have anything to add? No, well Austin? said. I will ask you guys too, just for the sake of argument. Uh, I think I, I can't remember who it was in church history who kind of described this. It may have been Origin with kind of speak about what does it mean that the Son is begotten. So just kind of somebody has no idea kind of that terminology. What does it mean that the Son is begotten? Because I know, like you know, Jehovah Witnesses they say that no Jesus was created. But how would you guys kind of explain that that uh, phrase? Go for it, Austin. <laughs> and I'll I'll piggyback. Uh, I think. Jimmy just alluded to it, that this doctrine of the son being begotten from the father's essence and yet is of the same essence is a mystery that we cannot fully comprehend. But where do we see this uh, doctrine in the Bible, Jimmy? I mean, it, it doesn't allude to begottenness, but I mean, the, the sense in which he's just called son is is one of the reasons why we we use the term begotten because fathers beget sons it, it is a way for us to use her, human terminology in a analogical way and not a univocal or one-to-one -one way but there is some sort of overlap and meaning between a a human father begetting a son and and the divine um father begetting the son however there is some great differences and and one reason we would be guarded from from the doctrine of the Jehovah's Witness that claim or Arianism that believes that 
Jesus is created, we, we root eternal generation in that term, eternal. Um, there was never a time in which the son was not the son. Um, he always was um, and, and always has been the son in the same way there is never a time in which God did not have the Holy Spirit in which the Holy Spirit was not spirating from the father and the son. So, I mean, begotten, I mean, it, it, it's essentially a saying that the son flows out of or is generated by the father, but we don't mean it in a, a one-to-one way with human generation. We're just simply saying that this is the way scripture has revealed it. And as Austin said, it's mysterious. We aren't going to, to go try and go further than what scripture itself says. And in many confessions, I mean, we see this, especially in the Chalcedonian definition of Christ. Many a times when we're confessing things, we're trying to avoid confessing heresy. So, I mean, we speak a lot of term times in the negative, like immutable. Um, means God does not change. It, it's a negative um, term um, in the same way when we say that, that the father is not the son, we're saying he's begotten um, is a positive way to say he's not the father. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in all honesty, I'll just pun it to mystery and say it's mysterious. <laughs> the generation of the son and the spiration of the Holy Spirit and, and the way in which the Trinity or the Trinity itself is a mystery given to us in Revelation. And as we read in paragraph one, this God who eternally exists is incomprehensible. Um, and therefore, the doctrine of the Trinity, though we can confess it and see it in Scripture and describe it, there is always going to come a point where we can't plunge into the deepest parts of what it exactly means. And human language is stretched to even try. That's why the next part, like the, the ends of uh, this paragraph by saying, this truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all our fellowship with God and of our confronting mm. dependence on him. Mm. Well, something I want to talk about kind of end this all right here, what it says, yet these three are distinguished by several distinctive characteristics. And we all would know that of the Trinity, only the son uh, was the only one that took upon flesh. Mm. And the reason why it's so important is because today, again, the reason why all three of us are here talking about God is because all three of us have been justified by the son Take mm-hmm. it on that flesh and die for our sins. Mm-hmm. But for the, you know, we got like about two minutes, but can you guys, because you, you know, it's always possible to like to know theology, but yet have your heart mm-hmm. far from the Lord. I know, I think it's us. Lou Lawson, he says that it's possible for people to have their name written in the church role, but not their name written in a Lance Book of Life. Mm-hmm. So what's the gospel real quick for you guys? We got two minutes, but how would you guys explain the gospel and why that's important as we close? You try first, Austin. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. It is um, the description of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in and of himself to reconcile sinners to himself by laying up his life on the cross and fulfilling uh, his role and the eternal covenant of Redemption. What do you have, Jimmy? Yeah, I mean, just to, I mean, bring it to the Trinity. It's it's God executing his eternal plan of salvation in and through the person and work of the Son incarnate and applied by the Holy Spirit. 
in the work of regeneration as it accompanies the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the person and work of Christ is God, the Trinity that saves us in and through the, the incarnate son by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think so. One person says too, like when we think about covenants, I think someone said that God fulfilled the covenant of works inside the covenant of grace to accomplish the covenant of redemption. And so mm. in those three covenants, we see like all three persons of the Trinity, mm. how we see here in our confession, describing the gospel. So Amen. I thank you guys both so much, man, for even coming to part, being part of this. I enjoy listening to you guys' podcast. So it's a blessing you guys came and kind of helped me walk through this. KJ, thank you. Thanks yeah, for KJ, having thank us you on. for having both of us on today. And no problem, man. Like I said, I've been walking through this all this year. So like if it's a particular chapter you guys love to talk about, definitely let me know. And I'll have you guys back all on right. again. Amen. All right, man. I'll talk to you guys later, man. Thank Thank you guys so much. Bye.